industry vet, early adopter, visionary, solutions expert. Those are just some of the words that come to mind after my discussion this week with Jared Upton of Angie Herbers, a firm that focuses on helping financial advisory firms grow organically. And Jared and I relate on many things, but mostly our quote, why for doing what we do. And it's to help other advisors scale and create efficiencies to impact and serve more humans. During his time at United Capital, Jared helped to scale divisions of the business and create a focus on the mass affluent division while on also enhancing the technology and user experiences that clients had when interacting with United Capital. Jared knows this business. He has been a practitioner, a leader, and now a trusted partner. And today, I'm sure you'll get more than just a few ideas on how to better your firm. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Jared, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, hope you're having a great week. How's everything going for you so far? Uh, Matt, appreciate it. Things are going well. A uh, little bit of up and down uh, in Texas. Uh, but, you know, as we say, if you don't like the weather, wait about 15 minutes and it'll change. Exactly, exactly. And being from Texas, um, you and I relate on many things, not only the industry and the why and everything of that nature, but uh, college football. So you're a Texas Tech fan. Uh, yes. There are ups and downs. So what? how do you keep even keel? Do you go to a lot of games out there? Um, why such a big Texas Tech fan? Well, Texas Tech is my alma mater, and uh, I'm actually a third-generation Red Raider. Uh, so my mom, my grandmother, uh, they went to Tech. And it's just school I fell in love with. Uh, and you know, I believe that when you support something, you support them through and through. I mean, there's ups and downs in life. But again, we don't want to, I'm not a, a fair weather fan. No offense to those that may be. Uh, but with uh, with Tech, our latest uh, uh, change was Kingsbury left. And again, he had a losing uh, uh, season, but now he's with the Arizona Cardinals. So we'll see. Yeah. Uh, uh, stranger things can happen. Yeah. And so I am always interested to know I, the Texas Tech fan base, I think, was on, on, you know, it was pretty divided in terms of whether they liked Kingsbury or they didn't. Where were you with regards to Cliff as a head coach? Uh, are you excited that he, you've got some new blood uh, in there? Or uh, did you like what Cliff was doing and building over there? You know, that's a good question. Uh, I liked what Cliff was doing, but, you know, he, he was there for five years and uh, six years, I guess. Uh, and he never got past that critical threshold. He never could get to the, the bowl game as being consistent. I mean, a lot of people would still compare him back to Mike Leach, I mean, who he uh, threw under. And Mike Leach was the benchmark. And if you're not going to be better than Mike, well, then we need to get somebody else in. So yeah. it's sad to see him go, but I'm excited for our new head coach. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see how a guy with the Sean McVay syndrome in the NFL is is going high. with When you bring in a head coach from college that didn't really have a winning record to come head coach coach uh, who hasn't necessarily or may have had a winning record but didn't really prove himself too much in the pro in the college game sure, uh, sure. so it'd be interesting to see how he does there as well it, it will be but if you look at his uh, protege uh, Mahones I mean when Mahones went in he was throwing up video game numbers with the KC Chiefs and so if that's a testament I'm excited to see what uh, Cliff's going to be in the, uh, this coming season. Well, so uh, I'm going to bring you back on for my new podcast that will come out maybe in 12 months on college football uh, because <laughs> I could talk about it for uh, forever. Um, but I want to get into really um, 
you know, you and I had a, some conversations in the past, and I thought that they were really engaging and valuable. And so, uh, what y'all do day in and day out, and how you help firms is extremely beneficial. And I wanted you to help share some of that knowledge here. And so, I'd love to get into that. Um, why don't you just give us a little bit of a background, just on on you and the firm, uh, and how you are helping firms before we head into really some deep dive into some of these questions. Sure. Well, uh, the, the firm Herberson Company was founded uh, about 17 years ago by uh, my partner, Angie Herbers. And really, this, the firm has morphed into what it is today is we want to help firms grow organically. And really where we feel like the value of that is that if you've got strong foundations, strong roots, it's going to help those firms to grow sustainably uh, through their future. I saw a lot of this in my history with United Capital, saw a lot of different types of firms, sizes of firms. And where I feel like that Angie and I really bridged the gap has been to take that knowledge base with working with multi-billion dollar firms and all the way down to startups, but helping to give them this foundational structure. Because again, like anything, if you're building a house, you've got to have a strong foundation that's put in right to know how you're going to be able to build that house for the future. And so that's really one of our biggest focuses is helping firms to implement that foundation and maybe do a little bit of demolition in in the meantime. Yeah. And one of those, one of the uh, items that you passed along to me after our initial conversation was regard was a research report that y'all did regarding this idea of diamond teams, which uh, really talks about the infrastructure, the structure of the organization, which if you talk about foundation, that is the foundation, right? Anything that you do outside of that, whether it's technology or process or whatever, is all hinged on how you're structured as a firm. Can you elaborate what you all mean when you talk about diamond teams uh, when you go into firms and what does that look like for financial advisors? Diamond teams are effectively the service construct of the, of the roles of the organization. When we think of a diamond team, we think of a senior advisor, someone's born in a rainmaker capacity, a lead advisor, those that are in the service capacity for clients, and then that associate or junior advisor, those that are up and coming in the ranks. And really what the diamond team does, it really does two key things really well. It gives clarity of roles because where we've seen firms uh, have some struggles is they don't uh, the people don't have clarity of roles. Secondly, it gives a career path or career track for those uh, advisors to move up and through, up uh, ultimately into a partnership or higher level leadership roles. And that's what we're seeing people that are joining firms. That's what they want today. Secondly, it also uh, breaks apart those that are uh, generalists or jack-of-all-trades into areas of specialization. And when you're specializing, you're focusing, and you're focusing, focusing, you're maximizing your role. I think that that's something interesting where uh, is um, y'all talk about diamond teams and structure and foundation. And we're talking about that in an industry where many of the firms, especially in the RIA space, right, the registered investment advisory space, it was all, you know, started up by one sole founder or two, two, got two guys and gal or whatever it may be. And they built the firm by having the relationships, they kept the relationships and they grew that way. And they never put any thought into it. And they're still on the front line serving clients, right? They haven't necessarily businessized their firm yet. And, and so my question or my thought uh, that I want to get your feedback on is how are y'all helping firms get over that hump of making that transition from the founder days when it was just a mom and pop family uh, style or lifestyle business to 
creating structure because Diamond Teams is structure, which is giving, yep. you know, that's like corporations, right? Where you're giving paths of, uh, to people, which when I say that it's like corporations, it's like a bad word, but it's not. That's businessizing your business and allowing it to grow past the founder and his initial team. Sure. What we found is there's some emotional engagement. I mean, when you're a founder, uh, often individuals uh, that are building the business, they, they relate to the business as their baby. I mean, a great book I would recommend any founder or Gen 2 to read is called The Founder's Dilemma. Mm-hmm. That, that book talks a lot about how a successor can t- look at a business and how a founder needs to think about what the team they're putting in place uh, amounts to. And so what we found is when you're talking to founders is that there's an emotional engagement there. And there's also some challenges of letting go, giving up that trust. If any of you are parents out there, the first time you bring in a babysitter and you want to re- give your child over to that babysitter, how hard that was. The same thing is true in your business is when you're giving those control areas up to that Gen 2 or that next person, that can be tough. But that letting go is showing that, one, you trust your people, and two, you're willing, it's allowing you to go and do your highest and best use. Most founders didn't get into the business to learn technology or learn compliance or do um, uh, human uh, capital management. They got into it because they love clients. There's a passion there. And how do we get them aligned back with that passion Mm -hmm. is key for their future success. Yeah, and to keep, and to position the firm for continued success because they're not going to be around forever. And and that kind of leads into the next phase of it, right? To position a firm for continued success, we're going to now start, like you have on the diamond structure, you're going to have to start getting younger advisors. And a lot of minimums for firms are now in the hot, you know, the millions and above. And, you know, the thing is, is that young advisors don't swim in those pools and millionaires may not trust them right away. And one of the structures that are the, the topics that you touch on within the diamond teams report is how that structure allows for firms to take on small clients, which mm-hmm. gives you another media or another avenue for growth, which is always a challenge, but gives you an opportunity for these younger advisors. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because I think that that is a segment of the market that as things have gotten better since 08, firms have forgotten about those people because minimums are now rising again because things are so great. But that is the segment of the market where I think there's so much opportunity because the high end of the market is so saturated. When you look at the uh, silver tsunami, this is all of the asset migration from your boomers down to your Xers down to now the millennials who are in the millennial generation. I mean, they're now your biggest uh, economic contributors. There are a lot of them that are Henry's. And maybe if you're not familiar with that term, that's a high earner, not rich yet. And they don't have the asset base. So instituting, again, a flat fee minimum is key uh, to working with those clients. But most of advisors uh, are within a 10-year age range, plus or minus of their average client. When you're bringing in younger advisors, newer advisors, they're probably going to still be working with people that look and feel like them. But what it does, it helps to future-proof that business. And should you lose those clients, those smaller clients, you're probably not really impacting a large percentage of your revenue as a business, and you're building those future leaders that can grow up. So again, institutionalizing the diamond team structure and bringing that, what I would say is an associate advisor or, a, or just an advisor as opposed to a lead and senior can help 
give you the sustainability, but two, it can also help you to attract more of those younger clients and uh, have those younger advisors learn on them as well. Do, do you think... Um do you think that firms that don't adopt something to allow them to, or don't adopt the mentality of focusing on the mass affluent are going to be um, negatively impacted in the future because of firms like where you used to work, United Capital, having the ability to, to, to attract those individuals because of just their, their sheer scale? Um, does it put the, the mom and pop RAs at risk in the future uh, because they're not taking a strategy to adopt that smaller segment? That's an interesting question. I'd say it, yes and no. It's going to vary by firm type and what their role is. Certain firms are really specializing and they may be working with physicians or they may be working with uh, small business owners. Now, you can maybe be working with someone right out of residency that doesn't have the assets. Again, you can have flat fee pricing. Whereas if you're wanting to develop a core business structure, the way that mom and pops can compete is really two areas. One, looking at their service model, because you can't give everything you're giving your tier one clients to your entry-level clients. So you've got to segment your service model. And then two, leveraging with technology. And technology is going to be key because it makes you more nimble, but also makes you more attractive and scalable. Having, again, a a data aggregation or online portal, I mean, that's your digital storefront. And your younger clients, uh, early adopters are looking for that. So it will delay the, se- the segregation between large firm that has scaling capacity and small firm. Uh, but the, still think there will be a divide as we continue to move forward. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I mean, that it's interesting to see how that divide will, will um how fast that will grow. And I, and I don't know necessarily if it's going to put people out of business, maybe, maybe not, but I think that it is just a longer term, you know, trends in the world take many years and sometimes decades to show their true force. And so I think it's just something as, a, as an eye. And, and you mentioned technology, and I think that's where we want to shift the conversation, right? Is a little bit of technology. Our industry has seen some sort of revolution or, you know, just surge of innovation in this space. And there are now technologies that do anything and everything. And they're making their way into the financial advisor space and people are getting less and less from a technology side. You know, they're not letting compliance keep them from innovating. And they, they keep it in mind. Um, but there's a lot out there. And these people that started these firms aren't technologists. Um, and so, uh, but they are focused on ROI, on everything they do. And so how do you help them navigate that ocean of innovation that's happening, but then also help them see the ROI of the adoption of new technologies and change, which is always difficult? Well, when I think through technology, at the end of the day, I look at it as an investment. I mean, it's like you're investing your time, you're investing your money, you're investing your, your human capital. And uh, we believe that any investment, you should have nine times uh, ROI, return on that investment back to your core business. The challenge, though, that we see with uh, technology, a lot of advisors uh, fall prey to SOS or shiny object syndrome. It's the new bell, whistle, uh, gadget, and it's the gotta have, and they're finding a solution now in search of a problem. Where the the way that I approach that is really by looking and identifying what's their current client experience that they have today, 
mapping that to what I would uh, say a new term no one's really talking about is their operational experience. Their operational experience, that's the foundation. That's what's right underneath the, uh, the structure for their business and for their clients and finding out where are those gaps. And so I would recommend that a firm document their client experience, map that to their operational experience, and then those gaps are going to present where those technology needs are. It's not, again, who's got the best rapport, who's got the new, latest, greatest whiz-bang technology. It's what are they trying to solve ultimately with that end in mind and using technology as a tool to solve that. And and some people that are listening here, uh, and you see a lot of firms, you talk with a lot of firms, you were at a huge firm before, and now you have exposure to all these other firms, both big and small. I I can see people or hear people when they're listening to this this segment right now being like, I'm fine. Our operational efficiencies are great. We got the processes, we've got Salesforce, and we have a workflow for scheduling meetings and onboarding. We got the great operational experience. Is Are they missing the boat or are they right from that standpoint? Do they have it? Or do, they, are they, do you still think that people that have that still have gaps in that operational experience? Well, uh you're get, they, they may have solutions today. Things may be working okay today. Again, I'm going to throw out another great book title. Uh, what Got You Here Won't Get You There by Marshall Goldsmith. And what they have today may be great today if that's where they're at, but it's not going to help them get to where they want to go in the future. I mean, one of the things we found in our research at Herbers and Company is that firms often grow through inflection points, or we call them growth barriers, where when you're a newer firm and you're at 1.2 million in revenue, your needs aren't the same as in your 5 million in revenue. You've got different needs. And a lot, we found a lot of firms are operating a uh, $5 million revenue shop like they're a $1.2 million revenue uh, dollar producer. And you need to go in and do some remodeling. And again, when you go, go back to my house analogy here is we build a house. But times we need to remodel. We need to remodel and upgrade because there may be a, a better air conditioning system or maybe we want to get a better kitchen. And so we've got to go and break it apart. It's going to get messy through the demolition phase. And that's where we found a lot of firms, they, they don't want to fix it. If it's not broken, why fix it? But is it performing as well as it could? knowing that where they want to go. Mm-hmm. And that's where we find a lot of the challenges with firms is that they may be okay right now, but until you really take a hard stare and you do a diagnostic, you're not really going to know. And the way you do that is really by engaging your people. Your people, if they're truly honest with you, they're going to tell you if something's not working, especially as you grow. But Jared, if it ain't broke, why fix it and change? Why, why, why would we endure change? Things are so good with our firm right now. We are growing. We have assets coming in the door. We have prospects and referrals and we're serving our clients. Why change, right? That's that's the common question that I hear or the common response I hear. So how do you get people over that hurdle? To, I mean, yeah, we bring in the other people to see it. And there's an honest conversation, but ultimately the founder usually who's sitting at the top that built the firm from the beginning says, we've gotten here, I'm okay. So how do you help people get over that rebuttal of change? Why would we ever change? And change is difficult for any human. Like we know that. So- how do you get them over that? First, I'd want to address where are their pain points at. I mean, if they're even considering change, 
really where your pain point is may not be where the root problem is. Is they're thinking change, change that smoke, but let's uncover where the fire is. And the fire could be, again, your culture starting to erode. You're starting to see higher turnover in your staff, or you're, maybe you're, you're still bringing clients in. Your last three years have been great, but has your growth slowed? Has your conversion ratio for new clients uh, coming into the door, has, has that slowed? Are you having a harder time uh, expanding out into new markets? And so the, it's, the, the reason to change is there's got to be a, a pain point. There's got to be an impetus to change and or succession planning. I mean, if you're uh, in your mid-60s or so or even early 50s, are you starting to think about, I mean, what's the future of my firm look like? I mean, what, ha- what happens if we all get hit by that proverbial bus? And have we future-proofed our firm in the event that happens? But reason that you need a change is be understanding where you want to go and where are your pain points today? Yeah. There's, and, there, there's three, let me, let me make one additional yeah, comment. There's, there's three things that are required to change. One is a desire Two is the ability, and three is the capacity. You have to have the desire to change, but often we found people that they may have the desire, say they do, but they may or may not have the ability. And then two, what we often find, even if they have the ability, they really don't have the capacity. They don't have the capacity within their team or within themselves to actually make the change once we've identified that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a matter of, you know, if, it, if, it, if it's not you as the founder, the COO or the CEO or whatever it may be, you got to empower someone else that maybe is an up and coming star that need, that wants an ownership role to be able to take that initiative, but they have to have the capacity themselves, right? And I think that that's a challenge that is really interesting to me. And it happens, I think, in any growing industry or growing business, but the founder continues to focus on what they're great at. They bring in people just to help solve some of these issues and they don't really understand. And that, that's why they don't understand what's going on in those levels after a couple of years, right? They don't understand the burden sure. that the people in those positions are actually facing because they're so focused on X, Y, and Z. And I think that that's why it's so great if you can have that open conversation with people and say, all right, is this the process? Like, are you doing what is best for you to do, right? Are you getting the most fulfillment out of your job? And are you doing what your skill set is? Are you just pushing paper, right? And can we figure that out um, and get everybody in the room to have that open conversation? And a firm that's able to do that has already checked the box that they're willing to change and they have this culture of learning, uh, which is a great step because a lot of people will be like, no, they're fine. We're good. We don't need to look at it. I don't want to look under the hood because I don't want to see what's actually there. Sure. Uh, with, with that, with that, I want ultimately say there's got to be a cultural alignment. I mean, if you're not having the cultural alignment and your uh, your people uh, are seeing your core values, seeing your mission statement, but if it's dis- if it's disingenuous and you're not living up to those expectations, you're not engaging your people. There's so much that they'll put up with before. Ultimately, there's another firm that is offering them more money, better benefits, or a better culture. Yeah, that's so true. It's the culture. I mean, you talk about your three points and I always say you have to have a why culture of learning before you do any of adoption of technology because if you don't, your ROI and adoption rate's going to be so low. Uh, what do you think, looking out five years, right? You know, technology, processes, businessizing the company, over five years, what's really going to be the separator between the, you know, um, the good firms in the industry and the really great firms in this industry as you see it, right? I know five years is a long time, uh, but it'll be here before we know it. So what do you think that is going to separate these firms? I gave a lot of thought 
uh, I've given a lot of thought to this historically and what makes a good firm versus a great firm. Uh, let's say culture and service. Those two things really. I mean, it, it, the technology, whether you want to go with the great financial planning app or you want to have a great CRM, your neighbor down the street has that. The differentiator is, I mean, your culture, your people who embody your passion, embody the firm. There, again, that's your greatest asset. And then having the service, that service model to the client, and how are you leveraging the technology as a tool, leveraging your client experience as a process, but having that service, and that's where I think through my own experiences working with advisors or as a end consumer, if I've got great service, I'll stick with them, even if they are more expensive. And often it's because they've got great people. And if they've got great people, normally there's a great culture to stay in behind those. Yeah. So I think those would be the two biggest differentiators. I love that. And, they, and I think that too often that's not focused on enough, right? I think that, that you're exactly right there. And, you know, as we kind of near uh, some of these last few talking points is, um, you know, every conference we've gone to in the past five or 10 years or even 15 years has talked about the aging advisor. And firms are going to have to consolidate in order to, uh, you know, they're, they're going to, I mean, who, what are these 50-year-olds, they're going to have to start selling their firms. There's going to be consolidation in the industry. And now those 50-year-olds are 60 and the 60-year-olds are 70 and they're still practicing and they have no desire to, to end the, the firm. And so it's not coming to fruition, right? That, that you actually have more, I think you might have more RAs now than you had 10 years ago, right? And it's not con continuing to consolidate or even five years ago. And so my question is, is it's a two-part question. Is this going to come to fruition in your mind? I mean, inevitably, people can't continue to work. Uh, but is the consolidation going to happen because people just get so behind the... Is it going to be because of age? Or is it going to be because they get so behind the curve in terms of technology and processes and infrastructure that they have to consolidate because of just inability to continue to scale? What, what, which, one's going to, which one's going to end up winning in that consolidation factor? Well, I do think that it will happen with the consolidation, but it's not going to happen as fast as we think it would happen. I, and really, I think that as technology continues to improve, our engagement to clients continues to improve, it's delaying that. And it's become easier for an advisor that is in their 60s to engage with their clients, assuming they still have the motivation. And I think that's really what's going to cause the change to happen is that motivation is going to start to wane. They've already met their own retirement goals and or they've just decided they want to go pursue other things uh, if they are ready to, set, uh, to sunset into the next phase of their life. That's really going to be the inflection point, in my opinion, which will cause firms to migrate or, to, or uh, move down the road. Now, with your clients, uh, if, if you're thinking through that transition, some firms, they're going to turn around and look around and there's, they're going to be the only ones left there. Again, another great book, uh, Who Moved My Cheese, uh, is a fantastic pop management read, came out uh, uh, 20 so years ago. And it was around that firms that don't adopt, they don't sniff and scurry out those next options, they're going to be left holding the, holding the bag. And frankly, their clients, as they retire or pass on, they're going to lose those clients to other firms that have already adopted better technologies, have better service models, and frankly, better culture. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I got to check that book out because you don't want to be the one holding the bag or the cheese or whatever it is. You don't want to be that person. Um, so to wrap this section up, um, 
I, I you have a you're in a unique position. You uh, are a trusted advisor for many financial advisory firms. You see a lot. You saw a lot at United Capital. I'm just interested in two of the biggest challenges that you're seeing that these firms are facing, whether it is organizational structure or, and and we all know everybody's trying to solve for growth, right? And that's one of the things that you help with by um, building out the the structure and the foundation. But outside of growth, what are two other challenges that you're seeing people have and how are you helping them solve that? Outside of growth, it, to me, it really comes back to human talent need. I mean, when you think about what is going to maximize people for their role, how are they measuring what success looks like? I mean, we all want to know if we're running a 100-yard dash, what, what's the goal line? How fast do we need to be to beat the next person to our right or to our left? And we know what we need to do. What you often see happen is, uh, is scope creep. Individuals come in, they're talented, they're capable, and they keep adding on more, but it's not in their core role. I mean, having that clarity of role and knowing how they measure, uh, what their measurement success is is key. Secondly, it's going to be finding the right talent because, again, there's, uh, we're in a bit of a talent war. There's, our unemployment is at all-time lows, and so people have options. I mean, and so they're looking for the right place. So having that clarity of role is going to be key. And then I'd say it's uh, the third item. Uh, you didn't ask for a third one, but I'm going to give you one anyway. I love it. Is really, is, is, is really focusing on what their service model is and, uh, and or their client experience. A lot of firms we've seen tend to be more expansive. They want to try to do everything. And the more you do the more you dilute what you can. And so really we want to try to get them to focus and by focusing what their service model is so they can be extremely clear, have extreme clarity for who they're supporting, what they're delivering, and how they're adding value. That'll actually help them become expert in that area for those clients as opposed to trying to be all things to all people. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think that that's really... um... It's just a unique perspective. That's why we wanted you here uh, on this show. And so, uh, I mean, I could continue talking down this path forever. I mean, we've had a few conversations and they've always been lengthy, which is great. And so I want to transition into buy-sell because I want you, and you, I know you need to get back to your, uh, your business and I know the listeners do as well, but buy-sell is my cheesy way of wrapping in you know, some investment advisory terminology into the podcast. So what I'll do is I have four topics, buy or sell, whether you think it's, you're in line or you're not. And you can give maybe a one or two sentence overlay of why you believe that uh, from that. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. So first one, buy or sell, the fastest growing opportunity for financial advisors, and we talked about this a little bit, is in the under $500,000 investable asset area or segment of the market. For me, Matt, that's a buy. Uh, one of the things that's one of the largest underserved areas in the industry, what I would say is I would institute a minimum model, or I call it the Henry model, that high earner, not rich yet, especially if people need service, provided areas support them, just have a minimum price for your value. Yep. I love that. Um, buy, sell. And we talked about this a little bit, but I'm going to put another spin on it. The constant headline of poor succession planning by financial advisors, founders, will ultimately catch up to be an issue issue for this industry. That's also a buy. I'd say I love the term, uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. I believe that as a fiduciary, that you should set your clients up for success, but this also means having a plan for firm succession. If you don't come back uh, to them when something happens, that could come back to bite the firm uh, later on. 
if they don't have that set up appropriately. Okay, I love it. Uh, third one, so you're very bullish right now, which I'm always, I always like to be around bulls, so I, I like that. Um, buy or sell, a technology budget is more important than a marketing budget for financial advisors looking to grow. Good question. I'm going to say sell on this, but it's really a chicken or egg question. I mean, if you aren't bringing in clients, you don't really need tech. However, if your tech foundation can't support growth, uh, you're going to work harder for less. So it's, again, you, you need a little bit of both, but just don't uh, get beyond your skis. Right. Okay. That's fair. I'll let you have that one sale. So the bull is, is starting to wane a little bit. Last one here to see kind of what go, where we go. Buy or sell. Advisors are correct to believe that clients would view a financial advisory relationship less personal if they were dealing with more technology throughout the relationship. That's uh, that's also going to be a sell for me. I mean, we all deal with technology every day. Uh, however, it's how we manage the relationship. When we think about social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, we've actually become closer to those around us because we can have be more connected with other individuals through tech. I mean, you look at our relationship, Matt, we're having a Skype uh, co- uh, talk right now and we're building the relationship. However, that's the key. The relationship still needs to be built, but it can be partially managed through technology. I agree with you there. I think that so... You know, I think that that one is a bullish outlook for a segment. So I'll, I'll lean you more bullish in this segment of buy and okay. sell for you. <laughs> uh, so I want to give you uh, some time to um, you know, take 90 seconds or so to really give you know, a final thought to, to the advisors out there. And I'll give you something to maybe go off of, but you can always kind of veer if you need to. And it's about the idea of giving the advisors a piece of advice that they can take back to their firm tonight, tomorrow, or the next day, and put their put it their firm in a position um, that will really allow them to separate themselves from the pack or something that they can do to better themselves uh, tomorrow. When firms consider their options and solutions, it's important that they know where they want to go. What's their destination? What's that end in mind? I mean, technology is a tool to help them to get there, but it's often not the end goal. There's really three things that I see that a firm needs to know how they define what that end goal is. It's with their people, with their people, and they're gonna, those people are helping them to build the ark or helping them to plant the path to where they want to go. But making sure those people have the tools, the tools they need to do their job better, their resources, this is the, the functions they need to uh, improve so they can be better at what they're doing. And finally, they need, they need support. They need support from the advisor, the founder, the owner, so that they can be impacted positively. And so giving your people those tools, those resources, those support, so that they can help you migrate the path, knowing where your destination is, and you're all getting there to, as a team. Technology is a tool, but it's just one of the many tools that you have in your in your tool chest. I love it, Jared. Thank you so much, and hang around here for a second. I'm going to give um, my closing thought here, which may go a little bit over my 90 seconds, so uh, I'm breaking the rules just for a second. Uncertainty is a word that makes any company or industry nervous, but for financial advisors, uncertainty or, quote, rocking the boat is even more dangerous relative to others. We like comfortable. We like boring. We like things the way they have always been. We have also been an industry that has been built by founders that grew the business and maintained a strong presence on the front lines of the business. Many other industries, as they grow, the role of the founder or leader grows as well. 
The work that was being done early on tends to shift to others as the founder or leader becomes the visionary, the core value cheerleader, and the people builder. But for financial advisors, it's a relationship business where the relationships were built at the beginning and it's hard to let those go. Letting go means handing valuable relationships off to others and then initiating the scary word of uncertainty. So instead of facing uncertainty to grow our role in the business and create a, quote, business, many of us stay in place to avoid the uncertainty and maintain the status quo to not rock the boat. It's so much easier said than done, but the industry must change their mentality here in order to truly grow their business and build a going concern that empowers others to build the future profits and the future success. It's the idea of, quote, businessizing your firm, creating a hierarchy with management that is focused on growth, new initiatives, and setting up the firm with processes, technology, and an infrastructure that lets it grow with or without the founder. The truth of the matter is that many of us in the business today don't know how to do this. And you know what? That's okay. But we all have built great businesses and are smart enough to adapt and evolve to new things. This industry is undergoing a major shift in mentality. Whether you see it or not, I'm here to let you know that it is happening. And thus, The firms that are able to welcome the uncertainty of moving from being on the front line to ultimately being on the top line will be the founders and the firms that separate themselves from the pack. This means spending your day as the founder CEO, focusing on strategy, technology, processes, and personnel growth, as opposed to security selection, financial planning, and trading. It's a change, and change is difficult, but separating from any pack is a challenge, and this challenge will provide the ultimate reward. To Jared Upton, to all the listeners out there, thank you all for your time, for tuning in. And again, hopefully you took one thing away today to bridge the gap between your firm and the future. And we'll talk with you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think 